Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Podalters. Podalters. I don't know how you find that. I asked last week uh, for a recommendation for what to call the listeners, you lovely guys, and someone said Poddleters over on Twitter. And I do I do quite like that. So we'll go with it unless I get a complaint. And this week's episode is brought to you by Clarence Court. Now, I am a little bit of an egg snob. And if you follow me on Instagram for a while, you might remember that for some time, my feed was mostly just yolk born and egg puns. And I got pretty good at it. And nowadays I am, I'm one of those people that if it's not a Clarence Court egg, I I can get a bit funny about it. I really have to say they are exquisite and revolutionary, if I'm honest. If you haven't seen them, they have the most vibrant orange yolks and just so full of flavour. Oh, they are my favourites. I cannot believe that I'm collaborating with them on this episode because I'm just blown away. Can't believe it. Just so pleased. I absolutely love them. But on to the podcast, episode five, I am talking to Caroline. Caroline is the co-founder of Lifetize, which is a new startup company designed to help people figure out how to make those big financial decisions in life, whether that's buying a house, having a baby, um, figuring out how you're going to take maternity leave. It's a really clever and smart platform for people who maybe don't feel that informed Um when it comes to money and finances, which is definitely me. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. We go into so many different areas and actually it ends up being quite quite a personal one because I guess money is so personal, personal? personal and such an emotional thing, but we don't really talk about it. So I do hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, please do rate, review and subscribe. And thanks again to Clarence Court. Bye. Hi guys and welcome to Adulting. This week I'm joined by Caroline who is the co-founder of Lifetize. Hi everyone. Do you want to give us a little introduction as to what Lifetize is? Yeah, so basically Lifetize is a website that helps people figure out how to afford those really big important life events. So things like how do I afford to buy a home? Can I, will I afford to have children? And how do I kind of piece it all together? So it's creating like a blueprint for people, for people under the age of 40 who don't really have the same lives that their parents did. Yeah, totally. And I think, I'm glad you said under 40 then, because I think one of the biggest things that impacts people of my age is I'm 25 and I'm just earning money where I finally got a bit more financial freedom. I can have the independence that I want. I can buy myself little things and go on holidays. So then for someone to come in and be like, right, you need to start putting money away. I'm like, no, don't take away my freedom. I've only just got some. <laughs> yes. I've only just got away from living month to month. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. But I know that a lot of what you talk about is how it's so important, especially for women, to be starting to put aside here and there where you can. Yeah, it's huge. And I think it's it's one of those things that for me, and it was really the catalyst for me in starting Lifetize, was this idea that 
women aren't really taught about their financial lives. And actually, when you look at it, our financial lives are so different from men's. And we've had this whole shift where women are in the workforce, we have mm. careers, we have all these choices available to us, but nobody's really told us what that means for us in financial terms. And so it comes as a bit of a shock for people. So I quite often give talks to groups of women and at the beginning I show them this slide which shows them how different their lives are. And it basically shows them that they're likely to be earning less coming out of university if they go to university. And, and there's a whole feminist question in, in whether is it that women gravitates to lower paid mm. jobs or is it just that those jobs like caring professions just attract less money because there's more women in it, right? Mm. And there's a whole question around that. And then, obviously, if you choose to have a family, you're likely to take time off for that. And they say that the motherhood tax equates to about 33% of your earnings, mm. and it could impact you for up to 12 years after you have your children. Oh so it's enormous. So you're, you know, you, here you are, you've got your career, and as you're saying, you know, you're just starting to feel like you're getting somewhere. Mm. And now you're having to think about, but hang on, do I wanna have a family? And what is that actually gonna do for both my career and also my finances over that time. And I just think it's a real shame that we don't talk about it yeah. enough in advance because we feel like we have all of these choices and actually quite often we hit these crunch times where we feel like we have to make quite difficult decisions. Yeah, It's a choice between career, children, or it starts to feel like that. And certainly, so one of the things for Lifetimes for me was a lot of my female friends are actually the breadwinners in their relationships. Mm. So they earn more than their partners. And we're seeing more of that. I think statistically, it's about 41% of women in the UK are the breadwinner. But that has an impact then on household finances and things around when you choose to have kids. Because if you're taking maternity leave and you're the one earning most of the money, you suddenly get into things around, well, how am I gonna pay my mortgage mm. in that time that I'm taking off? And I think there's just a lot of emotional stuff around this for women in terms of choices we make, timings and things like that, that we don't really think about enough in advance or we're not told about enough in advance. I Yeah, I definitely think it's the latter because for me, I've only just started to of my own volition, tried to learn more about finances. But all the men in my life, all the guys that I went to school with, seemed to have some preconceived understanding of money, of saving, of the importance of putting money aside. And me and all my girlfriends are a lot more kind of um, live fast, be generous, go out and enjoy yourself, let your hair down. And the, and, uh, the boys seem to be more selfish with their money. And I, I don't think that that's just me gendering it. I really do think that at some point, I don't know whether it's in magazines and culture or the way that things pitch things to us, I've just missed out on years of learning about money that my guy friends are so far ahead of me. Yeah, that's really interesting. See, I think there's a couple of, of points. I think there is a gender lens to it, for sure. I think the way that um, women are spoken to in the press about money. Yeah. And I think um, Starling Bank actually did a really interesting campaign around this about a year or so ago, looking in the press and seeing the different language used yeah. to men versus women. And they saw that women are taught very much things around the language uses like splurging. Yes. How not to splurge or, you know, how to kind of save pennies. So we're we're pushed towards quite small incremental things around budgeting at a very small scale, but we're not really taught to try to grow wealth. No. Whereas men, you know, every advert you see for, um, you know, even if it's cryptocurrency yeah. or investing, until very recently, it was always aimed at men in suits. Yeah. We didn't see ourselves. So if you don't see yourself reflected in any of the advertising or any of the educational stuff that's going to help you 
learn about how to get into investing, learn about how to build wealth, you're not going to do it. Totally. Yeah. And I think also there's the other idea that if you don't have a lot of money to start with, then you can never build money. But like I've come across now, and this other people might sound really silly, but I had no idea about compound interest. Yes. Could you explain oh that in a good way? Because I found this fascinating. I was trying to explain it to my girlfriends last night before we watched Love Island and I absolutely butchered it. Like it is. Um, so I think it was, was it Einstein who said that it's like one of the wonders of the world? Mm. So compound interesting is this idea that you earn money on your interest. So say you were putting aside £100, right, and you got an interest at 5%. So over that year, you're going to earn £105. And as long as you leave that money in and don't take it out, as long as you keep that 5% on the next year, you're then earning 5% on 105 And the way that it works is it creates like an exponential curve. Mm. So at the very beginning, it doesn't look like it's going up very much at all. But the effect of it over time is that all of a sudden you get that hockey stick curve towards the end. And I actually read a really interesting article the other day that talked about, you know, Warren Buffett's fund, yeah. so Berkshire Hathaway. And um, this example was saying, if you had put like X amount in, in say 1990, you would now have like 24 million or something. Wow. But the effect of the compound interest means that you would have earned most of that money, most of that 24 million in the past five years. Right. Because at some point you're almost like double, double, double. So you, yeah. you're kind of like kicking it up and up and up. And so... The, the way that and, and investing is one of the things actually that I find more and more women talking to me about. And But again, going back to your earlier point, they come at it and they say, I don't know where to start. Yeah. I don't, I feel embarrassed and I feel worried about even doing it because I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. And I don't want to embarrass myself. Um, and and I don't think men have that sense. I think they're more willing to just kind of give it a go. Totally. Either for bravado or because they've got enough other people amongst their peers who are already doing it. And women, I feel, a lot of the time hold themselves back from trying it because they're like, I don't know, I don't know. Well, we're trained to take less risks anyway. As women, we That's always right. approach things with much more caution and try to make sure that we can do it 100% right. And hilariously, women are actually better in the stock market. So great. right, this is the this is the hilarious thing. So we we don't do it as uh, to the same extent that men do. I think the stat is like still seventy percent of women don't invest. Mm. Um, so that's seventy percent of women who are just keeping their money in cash, which is what I did. I didn't actually put any money into the stock market until I was so I'm forty one now, two years ago, because I was nervous about yeah. it. Yeah, like I didn't have anybody in my family who'd ever really invested, so I didn't have anybody to learn from that I felt comfortable with asking those sort of dumb questions. And I felt it was too risky. You know, I come from, I think a lot of it, so there's a gender lens, and I think it also comes back to your background yes. and your upbringing. So there's many, many people who feel much more comfortable with investing, with buying property early, all of these things, because it's what they're, they've seen happen in their family. Yeah. And so it's very natural for them to model yeah. exactly what their parents have done or the brothers and sisters have done. Whereas I think if you come from a background like mine where we didn't have very much money growing up, I've got a whole different level of risk yeah, tolerance. Totally. Like I'm just more scared about doing something where I might lose money. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I went through a period as well where like my dad lost his job. So we I remember being times at home when we I heard my parents having conversations about money. It was really stressful. So I'm quite scared. I'm, I, I've never been taught how to be good with money. Yeah. And the attitude that I had, the reason I brought up compound interest just as, as an, a nugget there was because 
I was talking about this last night with my girlfriends and the, the one thing they all said was I don't want to start doing it now because I want to enjoy my life but the, the point yeah. is you're not doing it so that you're it's it's a really small thing now it, it, the, the point with saving and managing your money is the earlier you start it it's always going to be better even if it's not a lot yes correct and this is the thing right the, so the magic of the compound interest and I really recommend everyone just like get onto YouTube and like Google it because once you actually kind of see there's loads of animations and stuff that you can look at and it it just shows you that that graph and you're suddenly like oh yeah okay and just by seeing that it makes you go okay I'll just put a little bit in now because if you start early, then exactly as you say, you only need to start with a small bit. And the same is true for investing. So whether you decide, the compound interesting will work whether you put it into a savings account mm -hmm. or whether you put it into the stock market, right? The difference will just be the amount of interest you can expect to earn on yeah. that, right? So savings accounts for years and years and years now have been very, very low interest. The banks don't make money on them. They don't, it's, it's a weird thing. Like I think a lot of us are brought up to think that the way that the monetary system works is that banks have this stack of money mm. that you've paid into the bank, right? All of your savings yeah. sit in the bank and then they loan that money out to you. And it's actually quite mind blowing to learn that that is not what no. happens at all. They loan money out that they don't have, yeah. right? They just create loans and it just creates like a line in their sort of, in their ledger that says, this loan is to Anoni and here we go and she's got this thing and she'll pay it back. They don't have to have the same amount of savings to offset it. Matt told me this the other day and I it literally was mind. so shocked. He was like, they're trading money, that's the whole point. Because I'd always wondered how banks made money because I was like, well, they just have the money that's your money. No. And then he explained it. Honestly, I felt like such an idiot. No, but but it's not even taught this way. So I'm so my background is law, right? I'm not a fine, I don't have a financial background. I've yeah. had to kind of educate myself in order to be able to do this startup. And and, but there's this really interesting group called Positive Money. And so I first found out about the fact that the financial system does not work in the way that I thought it did. Here's a pot of savings, here's a pot of loans, and they match, yes. right? No, I realized that the banks are sort of creating money out of nothing and totally blew my mind. And from that point, I was like, ah, okay then. So that's wrong. <laughs> and now I have to try and educate myself a little bit better to understand it. So banks don't care about your savings yeah. because they don't make any money. They make all of their money from debt products. Right. Right. They make their money because you take out a debt, whether it's a mortgage, a loan, or a credit card, and they get to charge you fees and interest on that. Yeah. Right? That's how they make their money. And obviously, they also make their money sort of trading, trading in markets yeah. and stuff. But from a consumer perspective, they make all their money on the debt products that you take out. And I just think it's like, it's really interesting for us. And I think with your generation, particularly, so many of you have grown up with student debt. Yeah. That wasn't a thing for me. You know, I just missed that bit. I didn't have to take out student loans to yeah. the extent. And you've also grown up in the financial crisis. So you've yeah. all kind of come of age in a time of financial panic. And so everybody I speak to is just really worried about debt, mm. right? And I, I completely understand it. So everyone's thinking, I've started out my career and I've got tens of thousands of yeah. pounds of student loans. And I get that statement that comes through the door that reminds me every month or whatever, every quarter, that I owe all of this money. Yeah, And I think it puts such a different complex on on how your generation thinks about money and and the level of risk and yeah. the level of comfort you have. I also think the other weird thing which is it's true for every 
person when they're in their 20s is that it's the first time when you're not on the same playing ground. So when you've been at school, everyone's kind of on a level. Yeah. And when you're at uni, everyone's on a level. And then suddenly you go into the workforce and you might be, have a friend that's earning 100K in their first year and another friend who's on like 18,000 but has got money from their family. All of a sudden the playing field becomes really uneven and it becomes quite tricky because all of us were broke at uni. I used to make £100 last, honestly, a month. I don't know how I did it. I'd go on a night out with a £10 note yeah. and survive all night long. And then all of a sudden, it's become a bit more... Certain friends might have been given investments from their families to buy houses or, like, other people have credit cards. And I think it's that sense of, like, oh, shit, yeah. when you, when you realise that you're no longer on the same playing field as everyone else and there's not that much literature that's easy to consume about what you should be doing and and there obviously is no right age because again it's that idea of like we've all got different scope within what we're able to do some people might be able to save and some people might not have any ability to save whatsoever yeah it's really interesting you say that because that's the so when we built Lifetize we spent about the first year just talking to people about money, like yeah. their, their personal situations, um, but more importantly, how they felt about money. Because for me, money isn't just this abstract yeah. thing. It's it's so tied into us as individuals and how we feel and like hopes and dreams and all of these things. Totally. Right? And I was having an interesting conversation actually with um, a woman the other day who says that wealth and money is so tied up with people's self-worth yeah and we're not very good against your point in helping people kind of separate the two things yeah so when you do have a group of friends and one of you is earning a very sort of entry-level salary either because they've gone into a sector or a job that they really want to do yeah, yeah, but yeah. just the the pay is just not great and then there's other people who've chosen a path like I did which was can I make a decent amount of money yeah. relatively early and have that financial stability, which was kind of what I yeah. craved with my background. And you're absolutely right. And the things that came out of all of those interviews with people was overwhelmingly this idea of, one, people saying, what should I be doing? What mm. am I supposed to be doing? And the second one was, and particularly people when they kind of get to age 25 and above, was, I feel like I might be behind. Yes, totally. I find it so interesting that you said that your thing was like you wanted to earn money. I still now find it really hard to, um, I have to untrain because my learnt behaviour is to not want money. Yeah. It's to not want to earn a lot of money. One, I think it's partly because I recognise my privilege and then think, God, I don't deserve to earn loads of money because my life's fine as it is. And the other part, I think, is a gendered thing where I think, for instance, Again, I think because my family's quite medical, so we don't have anyone really that's in the city. But I, when girls at uni were like, I'm going to apply to work at EY, yeah. I was like, really? I had no idea. And they were like, you can do that. You've got an English degree. I actually went along with some talks. I had no, that whole world to me was just foreign. And I would never have even thought about income. And in a funny way, it's, it's a testament to my parents being like, do whatever you want to do. But also that's really unhelpful because they never kind of were like, but you're going to need to make X amount of money to, to live. So it's that weird dichotomy of like it's lovely to be able to do what you enjoy but everyone needs to pay bills yeah and it's um I, I guess for me it really does this is why I kind of say that so much of it does come back to childhood for yes. people and then you see how it kind of plays out it's almost like a mixture of childhood plus personality mm. plus opportunity that kind of sets yeah. people on the different paths so mine was you know um I'm the eldest of like four girls and 
my dad left when I was eight. And so all of a sudden, here's my mum as a very young. So my mum was only 18 when she had me. Oh, wow. So here's my mum, age like 24, with four daughters, <gasps> no job. Oh, my God. And, and my dad just wouldn't pay any maintenance. So she had to, like, chase him through the courts to get oh. any money for us. And that massively shaped Oh, everything imagine. for me around money because I had such an early awareness of what it meant to not have any money and how precarious that was and and just the the kind of terror of week to week living never knowing if you're going to have enough mm. and so that's kind of like baked into me and I've had to do an awful lot of like therapy and work to move myself past that mindset yeah. so for me it was very much like okay I'm the eldest I'm academic um right I'm gonna I had, a, I had a, a thing of, do I become, I loved writing, so do I become a writer or a journalist yeah. or do I become a lawyer? And I was like, one of those paths leads to more financial stability, not just for me, because I'm like you, money doesn't drive me for yeah. myself at all. I'm not driven by money or status in yeah. that extrinsic sense, but I'm very much driven by a sense of responsibility and wanting to look after my family. Yeah. And it's, that's huge for me and it still drives me. Yeah, totally. But I think also, I think that's so important, but I think that's the problem. I think we're shown that money is either success, excess yeah. and sex and wealth and all this stuff. But no one really teaches you that money is fundamental. And I know that money can't buy you happiness, but I'm starting to learn that money can buy you a lot of things that you need. I was so in that, and I don't know if that's a generational thing as well, but like in that idea of like, I don't need money you do you really you, you literally do, do. Oh, like you could they can't get away from we it. live in a capitalist society I know. so until we yeah. until we move past this yeah um yeah we do and it's and it's it is a really interesting thing because when I speak to groups of men versus groups of women men have no problem wanting to just build money you know build wealth grow yes. their money women tend to attach something else to it. So when I talk to women, particularly around investing, they want it to have social impact. Yeah. Which I'm like, that's brilliant because that's going to change the world. Yeah. And I'm thrilled about it. And you see it kind of top down. So you see it with people like um, Abigail Disney, for example. So you have a lot of women in the kind of like 0.1% who have inherited wealth and who are now in charge of, say, their family offices. Yeah. And who are getting to decide where their money goes to for philanthropic causes and stuff. And they're all suddenly starting to say, no, I'm not going to just put it into oil and gas. I want it to go into something that is actually benefiting society. Yeah. And so you're seeing actually quite a huge shift from the very wealthiest women. And I also see that echoed a lot with just us, yeah. right? Women I speak to on a, on a daily basis who say, well, I do want to invest, but I'm not comfortable investing in stuff which I... Don't yeah. believe is okay. Really, yeah. Th do you think there's another? It's a really positive thing, but do you think it might come from a negative again, a conditioning of women have to be? So I agree. As someone said to me, "What would you want to do?" And I was like, "I would love to have a company, but I would only hire people who didn't have the privilege I have, or who are single mothers." And I was like, almost making excuses as to like, how could I be worthy enough to make a lot of money if it ever happened, like a big, big income? Then I would have to offset the guilt of having earned that money by making sure that it had a positive impact. Obviously, that's positive in the outcome. But do you think that maybe it's interesting that it, it does, do you think it comes from that conditioning of like women have to nurture? I think it's that good girl conditioning. Yes. I don't know if you've read any of like Tara Mowers. Um, no. Uh, she, she's got a brilliant 
book actually for, so for anybody who is thinking of like setting up in business or who's just wanting to kind of accelerate their career she's got a brilliant book called playing big okay um for women and it talks a lot about the conditioning that kind of keeps us playing small and i think sort of attitude to money can be a part of that that yeah. that it's um the good girl conditioning means that we have to always do something that is not just for ourselves. Yeah, that does sound... I feel like I'm having money therapy. I feel really bad, <laughs> sorry. No, but it's so important. Like, I think it's really important to unpick your... I think we all... Because it is so emotional, because yeah. it is so tied to our self-worth and, and and our identity and and what we can do in life or what we believe we can... Like, I think it's more perception. So yeah. it's very much like what we believe we can do in life or... What's our place, right? And there's, mm. particularly in this country, there's a lot of class issues around stuff as well. And like, it's really, and I know this personally. So I went from um, a very normal, slightly stabby um, state school um, <laughs> for all the way up to GCSE. And then I got given a scholarship to a very lovely, very academic private school and we didn't have any money so I got like a full scholarship wow. right? mad probably the equivalent of about 20,000 pounds a year in fees Amazing. and all of a sudden I went from this very normal comprehensive school very mixed academically very mixed backgrounds in Watford and all of a sudden I'm in a school with like, I think one of the girls, her dad was, like, the attorney general, so the top lawyer in the country wow. for the government. Another one's dad probably, like, ran Pepe Jeans or something. And for me, it caused quite a cry. I, I only realize it now, but it caused quite a crisis of confidence for yeah. me at that stage because I suddenly saw what money could buy you, mm. like, the access to the better education, the access to a peer group that was all going to rise to these kind of levels, access to, you know, better universities, and all of a sudden, like, a, a path that opens up in front of you, which would not have necessarily been available to me, or I would have had to work a lot harder to have. Yeah. And at the time, it made me feel incredibly insecure, because I was like, I don't fit in here. Mm. This isn't my world. These aren't my people. I'm never going to have what they have. And interestingly, coming out of that and then going on to university and then kind of being part of those worlds, I've almost had to train myself to feel that it is okay for me to be in this. And and it's really, when people meet me, they would assume because of the way I speak, yeah. because of the fact that I was a lawyer, that I've had a very, very privileged background mm. all the way through. And I definitely did not in early life, but I definitely did from sixth form onwards and it's a real shift in in your expectation of life in yeah. how comfortable you feel in sort of moneyed situations and I think it's a real shame because I I, I worry about barriers mm. for people I worry about people thinking well I'm probably never going to have any money so I shouldn't even bother trying I, I wonder about that I don't know but I I, it's so interesting to hear because I had the thing in reverse. My dad absolutely worked and still probably will work till he dies, I think, yeah. to pay for us to have all gone to private school. I don't know where he got this idea from, but he wanted it. My sister got a massive scholarship and then I went and we all ended up getting scholarships, which is great. Not full scholarships, but I think I ended up having almost 75% off. Yeah. And so I went from, from year seven 
until sit form. And it wasn't until I went to university that I realized the bubble that I've been living in, I just had no idea. It was a boarding school, but I didn't board and I didn't have a wider conception of how much privilege there was. I was amongst, again, like you said, some of the richest people, but we didn't really know. Again, because it's a boarding school, you kind of know their dads do that. I didn't know that that's what money meant. I went to these houses that looked like home and gardens. I didn't know that that was money that had that. That was just my friend's house. Interesting. Whereas I, coming at it late, went to people's houses that had like an extra wing attached and absolutely lost my tiny mind and felt terrible. And to the point where, and I I feel quite um, embarrassed and guilty about this now, but, you know, age sort of 16, you just want to fit in. Yeah. And so at the time, I chose to live with my grandmother because she had a much bigger house so that I could take my new school friends back to the big house instead of the small house where I grew up. Right, it's that pressure to kind yeah. of fit in, and I think money has such such well, an emotional thing on you. So, there's so many things I want to say. Cause this is so <laughs> funny. So I I now could never afford to buy a designer handbag, and I went home the other weekend, and I've got like four Mulberry bags because when I was at school, I worked from the age of 14, and I spent all of my savings from working 12-hour shifts at this wedding place on bags so that I could take them into school and look like all the other girls who got bags for their birthdays and stuff, and. But I had it the other day and my boyfriend was like, Matt was like, that's another one. I was like, I bought this when I was 17. I would never be able to afford that now. Wouldn't spend my money on it either because it's just stupid. And it's that idea of fitting in. And the other day, like another point that I found interesting, I went to meet some girlfriends for a tea in Chilton Firehouse. I was like, can you just come in here? And they were like, yeah, you can just come in for a tea. And I was like, oh, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like, I probably would feel comfortable sat there, but other people in a different circumstance or from a different background would never just walk into Chilton Firehouse for a cup of tea and realise you could work there. You could probably work there all day and not be hassled if you just drank tap water, but you would go, I'm going to go to Costa. And I've noticed, and I said this to the girls, as I've got more elevated in my job and as I've started to get more comfortable in what I wear and like that I'm living in London, I've started to go to nicer coffee shops because it reflects my um, (laughs) perception of how well I'm doing by what I decide to surround myself with. And this idea of not thinking spaces are available to you, a lot of it is because we create these, as you say, invisible barriers. And going to private school, the thing it teaches you totally is how to network a room. And I went to an event with a tortoise sinking the other day, which I really like, it's like slow journalism, but it is full of privately educated white middle-class people. And so I sit there and feel so relaxed being handed a microphone and I can talk to all those people. And I was like, because this is my... Your space. That's where I've been brought up. Obviously, I'm so comfortable and people will listen to me. But for a lot of other people, that would be the most terrifying environment in the world. It's just... And and I remember, and I think a lot of it does come from, from trying to pass in whatever situation, you know, trying to show that you belong there. You know, as humans, we have such a evolutionary need to fit in and, and belong and not to be cast out and and all of that stuff and I definitely remember that like when I was a a trainee lawyer I I bought a suit from Harvey Nichols right I went to Harvey Nicks and I bought a suit in the sale because I thought that's what you yeah. should do yeah right I've made it I'm you know I'm I'm on this path now I mean, the rest of my suits I bought from like Mango and H&M and yeah, stuff because yeah, yeah. I've worked in H&M since I was sort of 15. But um, I bought this one suit because I thought, okay, now you've got, now you've got, and I can't remember, I think it was like Sharuti or something like yeah. that. So it was like proper designer label. But I felt that I needed to have that in all, it was almost like armor. Yes. To, to allow myself to believe that I fitted into that sort of city law mm. thing and I wasn't just a pretender. And I think that that whole 
So I think a lot of my sort of insecurity of my financial background has played a lot into the cho- definitely the choices I've made in life, mm. both money and and other. But money's kind of always flowing underneath that. Yeah, you know, I I still don't own a home. You know, I'm 41 and I don't own a home. And actually, partly that's because I've foolishly put all of my money into my startup. Um, <laughs> do that kids um but when I was looking to buy a home there would always be a reason I didn't and I looked you know I at the the time with my boyfriend we were we were looking and we probably spent about 18 months looking and it was at a time when almost every week it seemed like house prices were going up right and that made me panic yeah this idea that we were always chasing something and we would never quite catch it and we were always just slightly out of time and therefore sort of scrambling to mm. to to chase something we were never going to get and and i just remember feeling every time i looked at a house finding some reason to discount it finding some reason not to buy it because fundamentally i was too scared yeah i was too scared to put that much money in something where it might not be the right thing yeah and I'm a perfection. I'm a recovering perfectionist anyway. So, like, I'm a classic overthinker around stuff. Yeah. But it's kind of like my my perfectionism around wanting to find the right thing or wanting to do it right, combined with insecurities around will I have enough mm. money now and in the future, have meant that I haven't taken the leaps into things that perhaps other people have. I think the buying a house thing as well is is so prescient in this time because it's completely changed. The the way that we view buying a house in the, between my mum buying a house and me buying a house in the last 30 years is a whole different ballgame. It means a whole different thing. Especially in London, people literally laugh if you say, are you going to buy a house? And my mum, when I did a podcast with her, she was like, I was 21, I had a house. Had a, like, that was just... Just was. They bloody Standard. had a house in Hunhill they bought for like 25 grand and then sold imagine I could be living there now but yeah it's the and it's now to me I honestly believe when you say damn house it makes me so much better because I can't imagine owning a house in the next 10 years I don't know how that would happen it's really interesting so um with life ties we so we we basically build tools to help mm. you figure that out right that so, did this with me to how to how yeah. to plan for it because and but but the fundamental point you make is absolutely right that for a parent's generation things that were just very standard life goals were just achievable. Yeah. They weren't easy necessarily. You know, they did have other issues around massive interest rates on mortgages yeah. and stuff. So it wasn't the case that just magically appeared for people. But you could do it and you could do it on normal salaries. Yes. So if you're a teacher, you could expect to have yeah. a house. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just the preserve of lawyers and doctors mm. or what have you. It was everybody had that expectation. And I think... For your generation, there's a real, like, you've got, like, this this combination of, like, the student debt point, which, mm. which just feels like a weight yeah. on you. The fact that house prices have just gone so, so far inflated compared to wages. And then there's also the fact that I think there's just this, the media constantly presents to you the fact that it's never going to happen for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the negativity in the press is extraordinary yeah you know what you're constantly told your generation is you're never going to own a home you're never going to retire so don't bother even thinking about it yeah um 
and and also that you're really feckless, right? You're told that it's your fault. Yeah. This is the thing that really winds me up. Yeah, you've just, you've just eaten too many avocados. On LBC, they did a whole show. I love LBC, and I think it was James O'Brien, and he loves a bit of an argument about millennials. It might not have been him, actually. They're basically like, and they're spending four pounds a day on coffee. And someone rang up and was like, that's literally like 28 pounds a week if they're buying one every single day, which is absolutely nothing because they don't go out. They don't spend money on drink. Yeah, we don't buy, we don't even, people don't, I have a book club and people like, I don't really want to buy it because it's really expensive. Let's go and buy it in a charity shop. People are thrifting. I, I buy know. loads of clothes in a charity shop. We don't actually spend. We, I do eat dinners out, but really I think our spending is a lot lower. The majority of people are like, I can't afford to go and have afterwork drinks. It's just not going to happen. We'll plan one night out every whatever so where we do spend money it's because that's our bit of joy that coffee is like and and like if there's one thing that I say to people it's do not lose the joy in pursuit of what the other things are yeah work out what that joy is that you absolutely need to protect at all costs right those little bits of joy like there is absolutely no point saving, squirreling away all of your money for like future you, right? Only to have the most miserable existence right. at the moment. Like there is, there's always compromise. There's always has to be some levels of of sacrifice, and it has to be. So I always think about it in terms of mindfulness, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm quite a, a hippie at heart. So I do a lot of yoga and a lot of mindfulness to try to calm down my crazy brain. But I think that it's the same attitude that you kind of need to develop towards money so that it doesn't become this thing that panics you. Mm. So a lot, you know, when when we build our tools, we spend as much time on the psychology of what we're building because I'm trying to get people over the fear and the anxiety yeah. that they feel of even engaging with their finances, of even like looking at them more than, you know, occasionally mm. when you take out some money, like, oh, do I do I press to look at my balance or don't I, right? You know, it's that kind of thing. And so we spend so much time thinking about how can I make somebody be okay with even wondering if they might be able to buy a home at some point, mm. right? So our home finder tool is exactly that, yeah. right? It's designed to take you through this journey of what could I afford to spend on buying a home? How long is it going to take me to save to get there? And I just want to reassure people that we have many people using it who are looking five to six years in the future, right? So they're your kind of age and they're like, okay, let me see what I could do. Yeah. And then, because we're of of the opinion that if you start to plan for it, you've got a heck of a lot more chance of getting there. It might be incremental. It might be slow. It might not always feel great. But if it's something that you want and you can start on that journey, those little steps feel far less painful. Yeah, I, I know it's it's so true because I think the time just before we met, I told you that I was getting stressed about my tax. I won't look at my finances. I point blank won't look. And Matt was like, "You just got <laughs> you've got to look." And I was so scared about how much I was going to have to save. And then we just added it all up. And I was like, "Oh, so all I've got to do is just put that aside." And he was like, "Yeah." I was like, "Oh, that's fine." Yeah. But in my head, I don't ever look at things. I'm very bad at breaking things down, and I just see lump sums or get very stressed about what might happen. It's a bit like we all get this thing where I know it's such a, there's an amazing article about millennial burnout. I think it's a really generational thing where we let to-do lists build up. It's like when you don't want to reply to an email, Completely. all you've got to do is ping an email back and it's a conversation that goes back and forwards. You don't even have to do all the work. It's not like that one email means you have to then complete the whole task they've told you. You just reply. But in my head, I'm like, I can't st- I can't open that email because if I, I can't. I can't deal with it. I can't deal with it. Yeah. But once you reply, you're like, oh, all you have to say is thanks so much for seeing this. 
this and I'll get back to you next week. That's all you've got to do. But it's that it's actually getting past that initial barrier. Yeah, it's huge and it's huge it's, and it's, yeah. And that's why I always want to reassure reassure people because I think it's crazy. Each of us is trying to figure this stuff out individually, right? Mm. And this is enormous stuff, right? It's not just you know it's. It's not just, uh, oh, do I have enough money to buy some milk, right? It's, it's, it's around, what does my life look like in the future? Yeah. Am I going to be okay? Like, it's really fundamental, yeah. like, almost survival stuff for a lot of people gets worked up mm. into this. And elements of, like, control and choice yeah. and all of these things. So it's, when people say to me, I, exactly what you said, I don't like looking at it because I, I'm too worried like about it. you're going to get into a black hole. I'm like... Yeah, of course. That's how most people feel. You know, most people, until they get to a point where they really know it and it's mm. all kind of being managed, most people shy away from it. Yeah. If they didn't, I wouldn't have a business, right? I wouldn't have I wouldn't yeah. have a startup. If everybody knew how to manage their money and plan for the future and figure all of this stuff out, I, I wouldn't have a business. So I'm very grateful, actually, that nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to help. And I think you're right. Because the perception around money is always so scary, the, we don't feel that incentivized to do it. For instance, like exactly what you said earlier, my girlfriends last night when I pitched the idea that we need to start saving, they were like, I don't want to live a shit life now. But that's not, that's not what's going to happen. But also, the other incentive, I guess, for me wanted to even especially in relationships, is my mum doesn't work now, wishes she works, but hasn't, and feels very much like she's got no financial independence from my dad. So I always am trying to pay for stuff even when I can't afford it because I have a bit of weird control around I don't like people paying for me because I want to feel like I'm in control, I'm paying for it, and I'm not having someone else pay for me. But when it comes to relationships, luckily Matt and I are really open about money, but I've asked some of my girlfriends, they won't speak about money or they're too embarrassed, but... You kind of need to know, like, if your boyfriend or girlfriend's got a really bad credit rating or if they're in loads of debt, like, these these conversations are really important to have early on because especially when it comes to, like, domestic violence with women or yeah. slightly more serious things down the line in terms of the, the power, it can be really, really dangerous. And I think that's another the part of the argument that we don't always hear about with money because it is so directed at men. Yeah, we don't, don't realise how much you can actually get yourself in a bit of a... It's kind of like how you should have an emergent. I don't know. You probably can yes. explain it more. No, than- I think it's completely true. It's it's um and because of my background and and seeing what my mum went mm. through and everything, like my driver behind Life Ties is I want women to have financial independence. Yeah. I want women to understand their money, to feel secure, to feel that they have choice. Yeah, like it's it's huge for me. Like you can probably, I mean, you're looking at me and I'm like, yes, <laughs> like this is this is the thing that kind of gets me up every day and yeah. it's like. I really need to get more women to be in a similar position to men. Yes. Right? That's what I want, that level of parity mm. in terms of confidence, in terms of choice, all of these things. And at the same time, what you're talking about on the real negative side of that is also very true. You know, women more than men end up in situations either through caring responsibilities, through motherhood mm. or what have you, where either for a period of time or for quite a substantial length of time, they might not be earning their own money. And I'm incredibly independent. Like, career is very important. I don't have children. I've made that choice. And for me, having financial independence has been one of the driving forces in my life Mm. for good and bad, but always wanting to know that I have my own money. Yes. And that, therefore... I'm okay. Yes. I'm, I, as an individual, am secure. 
I can make sure that I will always be all right has been huge for me to have that safe, that personal safety net. And I speak to a lot of women who, particularly when they go into motherhood and all of a sudden they've maybe had a career and, mm. and now they're not earning their own money. And the dynamic changes. Having to ask somebody else for money, even if it's your yeah. partner, is a huge thing. And I have it in my own relationship, you know. So Nick, my partner, is also my co-founder. And I do consulting work to fund life ties, but that also funds him mm. working full-time on the business. So we have a similar dynamic. And at the beginning, it was incredibly hard for us because it was like I was giving him pocket money. Right. Here he is, a grown man, and I'm having to give him mm. some sort of a, an allowance. And my friends who have children have had a similar situation. Oh, interesting, yeah. And even in situations where they've perhaps been the breadwinner, but all of a sudden they're now reliant on mm. one salary or one salary plus savings, you know. But it no longer is their money coming in. And the dynamic shifts so dramatically that they often tell me in, that they don't feel they have a say anymore. I think that this this conversation is actually something that I'm starting to feel, not so much with my sister and her friends because they're all in their 30s all getting yeah. married. And also I was just listening to Griefcast earlier. I don't know if you listened to it with Carrie Lloyd. It's about grieving. But the, this woman was talking about losing her father and she went, I've just had a baby, so I've had another grief, which was stopping work and I never heard anyone say that before and she was like coming out of work it's one of it's like grief you it's one of those hard things to give up like she was like it was a part of my life so there's that thing of like realizing that actually we are shaped so much now by our careers careers becoming so all-encompassing my career especially is from the minute I get up to the minute I go to sleep because unfortunately I kind of am my career and there is no possibility to switch off in a good way I could probably work with kids as well but the interesting thing is Women now want to get to a really good point in their career, so they want to have children later. And then that's kind of disrupting family balances, and then we've got all these conversations around kind of like fertility. But also, if we just had that equality of men being able to take paternity leave, and if we had a better understanding of like, it doesn't have to be a woman staying at home, then I think that would elevate so much stress and make it so much better. But until that happens, like I I want to probably work until I'm like 35, until I know that I'm financially independent, financially stable, earning enough money. But I don't even know if I'll be able to have kids by the time I get yeah. to that point because I we don't know what the what men will be allowed to do. It's really And I think you know that's it's such a good point. And you know, so we have like a, a childcare cost calculator as one of our products and um that came from my friend's situations yeah. of of they hadn't really known how much childcare, you know, what, what does it cost? People don't think about it. Everyone just goes and have ki- has kids, yeah, right? So- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Quite rightly, in a sense, because otherwise the population would have died out by now. Right? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but the cost of childcare are insane. And there's whole sort of social policy issues around this that seem to impact women more than they do men. Obviously, you know, that the money has to come from the household pot. Right. But traditionally, what's always happened is that it has been the woman who has taken time out of career mm. to have the child and then has gone back 
on a part-time basis. Yeah. And then the money for childcare comes from, from that and they figure it out. And I looked at that and went, hang on a second. That's 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 so many huge assumptions yeah. baked into that. And we're still effectively telling women, yes, you can be self-actualized, you can have a career, you can yeah. have all of this. But if you also want children, you're then going to have to figure that piece out for yourself. Yes. And we don't tell men that. That doesn't that that it doesn't affect their careers yeah. in the same way. And so when we designed our childcare calculator, we designed it on the basis of I'm not going to assume that it's the woman in a heterosexual relationship who's going to stay out of work or go back part time. Mm. I'm going to let people, couples explore how many days might each of them want to work? Yeah, that's cool. What does that look like? Can we start to try and build in some flexibility for men as well? Because all the guys I know, they want to have yes. as much input or at least some input into child raising. Mm. They're also caught in this trap of, okay, I'm the one that goes out to yeah. work. Like it's still so outdated. And it's also that companies will punish people who choose to take paternity leave I've spoken to guy friends who are like we have it available but if you take it they are literally like well you can jog on because we can get someone else who would be happy to work those hours so it's even though we're, we're definitely making strides forwards the attitude unfortunately is still being instilled by the same people that grew up in that jolly hockey sticks yeah. whatever kind of era yeah. and um, the other thing that I find really interesting if we're talking about fertility and babies and stuff is uh, we obviously know that one of the best things we can do for the environment and for the economy is to educate women and girls about contraception and um, healthcare and those things and one of the ways to make sure that happens is to make sure there's more women with more money dripping more money back into the economy and you spoke about this a bit before with me when we went for coffee about um, like that female driven economy and how much you brought up a bit earlier could you explain a bit more how, like, why it's so important that as women, even if we feel like we don't deserve that money a bit, like I was talking about before, how much it actually greatly impacts if we rebalance or redistribute how wealth sits in gendered spaces? In society. Yeah, yeah, it's it's enormous. It's you know, I've I've spent quite a lot of time looking at this one because I'm sort of an, a bit of a geek mm. on stuff, but also because I'm I'm only ever attracted to doing businesses that have like enormous social impact yeah. in, in my small way, right? What can I do that could maybe start to create ripples? And so I look at, I think about money, not just in terms of it on an individual level of, you know, how can I help each person become more financially capable, more financially secure, but what does that look like kind of writ large over mm. a society? How, how can we maybe change a capitalist society from a different gendered perspective and what would that look like and and can you know can yeah. we and what are the steps to do that and it's really interesting so I I went to a talk the other day with Mary Portis um mm. who people may know and she's doing a tour she's written a book called Work Like a Woman uh, all about how she changed her company around to be I guess more more female friendly or or how how would they build a company from scratch designed in a way to support women as much as men right and she took her company back to profit neutral and you know sacked off loads of clients that they didn't like and then went about thinking about okay so what sort of policies would we build in mm. to make this a better place for everybody to work 
but particularly focused on women's lives. So yeah. allowing women to take time off to have children and then how do we support them coming back into the workforce so that they can maintain some of that financial yeah. independence and maintain their careers and how do we juggle that? And she's now incredibly profitable again. Mm. So it shows on, you, you start to see it on individual levels, how women changing how they run their own businesses mm. in terms of paying people fairly, having policies around things like shared leave, um, supporting people coming back to work, shows you how this can start to be done. And then there are tons of initiatives at the moment which are very late, very overdue, but I'm very grateful that they are around women funding women in mm. business, right? So I think that the stats at the moment are that about between two and 3% of all venture capital in the world goes to women-led businesses. We get yeah. about 3%. So think of all that, I mean, like you must know tons of people who've got their own businesses, mm. who are starting businesses, who are starting really incredible businesses that have huge potential. And yet, Again, going back to these sort of invisible barriers yeah. that we talked about on an individual level, so we have them on a huge structural level when it comes to women being able to take those kind of leaps into business mm. on the global stage. So when I went to that talk I was saying about with Emily Bellet, who um, created Vestpod, she had four, five women maybe on a panel who had gone through her like workshops, and basically one of the women was saying she'd gone to so many investors, she'd spoken to so many men in suits, and none of them wanted anything to do with her. They said, come back to me when you made this money. She was like, no, the whole point is I'm coming to you for an investment so I can make the money. Eventually, she crowdfunded it and made the money she needed in a week. It was all crowdfunded by women, and wow. she's making a huge turnover. And it was just the idea that if we knock on those conventional doors and they are telling us that you can't do this, it's very likely that, as you say, like these incredible businesses, which really do need light of day, won't get seen. And it's that annoying argument where people go, oh, it's the best person for the job. It's not because the people who are picking these jobs have a very small-minded opinion of what's neat. What's it's backable. It's like how every office temperature is set to the temperature that <laughs> yeah. men need to be in a suit. Yeah, and we're freezing. Yeah, we're and women's frozen. bodies temperatures are naturally lower than men's and we tend to wear like less layers. And so that's why women in summer will have blankets on because it's <laughs> so cold in the office. It's just those, even though that's really small, if you think about how many things like that are just embedded into, into these generically men when I did a retreat actually interestingly last year was it the year before in Sardinia and a lot of women who worked in the city and they were talking about how they work, went to work in investment banks went to work in these jobs but they really didn't enjoy the fact that they were meant to go out drinking with clients from 11am yeah. or doing drugs with them or whatever and they were like we just want to go into work get our job done and leave at five whereas the men love this like this obviously massive generalization but from what they were saying they really enjoyed the um, camaraderie and like they're making the and they were like we could get this job done in five minutes I just need to set a proposal up you agree we say yes take you on as a client and I'll get the work done I don't want to do this I don't want to Eat drink in the daytime time. I don't want to ruin my livelihood I've got friends outside of work and what it is is before that like men have been doing business over beers since the beginning of time but women weren't allowed access to that and now that is actually changing like a lot of those corporate companies don't allow those things to go on as more because women have come in and been like you're literally pissing around like what are you doing <laughs> and I actually find that mind-boggling when you think about it that that is how business has been done and it's not to say it's wrong it's just that in this climate it's so interesting that we haven't yet thought that women probably have quite viable <laughs> and great ideas yeah and it's um so I am like a member so I've 
it's interesting actually because when I started out doing startup stuff, so 2012 was when I first allowed myself to dabble. So I I, um, I quit my then job, um, called myself semi-retired, um, which was brilliant. I was like semi-retired for 18 months before I remembered that I lived in London and therefore like my burn rate was insane <laughs> and I didn't have like loads of inherited wealth. So I was probably going to have to like do something about it. Um, but during that time, I allowed myself to start dabbling in startup stuff. And I found that I was actually really resistant to going to female-focused business events. Mm. I had so much ingrained patriarchy. Internalized like, misogyny. really did around, oh, that's not where the serious stuff is yes. happening. And I have to really, like, have to be very honest about my attitude then. I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And I had a lot of internalized misogyny around around do women actually help women? Mm. Because I guess in in some of my experiences in law and stuff, it had seemed like it was a bit of a competition rather than collaboration. And what I've seen hugely in sort of the, the past sort of five to seven years is structurally those things are changing. The amount of support that is out there for women wanting to start their own business to get funded is growing and growing mm. and growing. You, you know, you have everything from the Albright Members Club, which yeah. was, you know, the first one um, that's all women over here. And I think the wing is coming um, soon. And then you have groups of angel investors. You have groups of VCs now who are focusing on funding women and other minorities. And so you're starting to see a bit of a shift, mm. but it's still tiny in the grand scheme of things. And so what I would love to see is, so I talk about having something called like an equal system. So like, you know, a play on ecosystem. And the equal system says that we need to have a funnel from those people who have great ideas and who want to start their businesses mm. and a way for them to find education, support, yeah. access to money so that we funnel them to these things that become their scaffolding yeah. effectively. And then we also need to have people in positions of power within the media yeah, totally. to actually amplify what's happening with these businesses. So I'm starting to get that a little bit with mine. I now have found the women who are in various publications, who are interested in what we're doing, who are happy to kind of amplify what Life Ties is. And we're starting to see the benefits of that. Yeah. Because otherwise... How do consumers ever find out about totally. it? Right? So you need to have the whole thing from the business owner all the way through to the consumer with all of those steps that have been traditionally filled with white men. Yeah. And we now need to have them filled with diverse people who can make different purchasing decisions. Yeah. And I think it always comes down to this for me. Every single thing always comes down to inequality. It's just it's just unfair. But the other the other thing I think is recognizing, as you say, that education around money can be as little as realizing you are you are just as capable and just as able to earn and save money as anyone else you just have to realize that you can do that because I think there's so many statistics to say that the less you have the more you give away because you've never understood hoarding wealth or keeping money because what what would that be for and I've seen it before I do think that I, I even knew it with my friends who are more rich. We'd be like, they're so stingy. Well, that's probably why they're really rich. <laughs> and lower socioeconomic groups do tend to, they will look after people in their neighbourhood. Like it's a, it's a more community sense, which in some ways is actually really positive. But it's, 
it's the retraining of understanding that um, money isn't just for when white men in suits. It is really important that we all see its importance. Yeah, Does that make and sense? I think it's yeah, and it's it's. I think probably helpful if I kind of run through a few things, yeah. that, like practical things that people can actually do. Yes. Because I think there's often it feels very overwhelming. It's just this like big mass totally. in front of you and you're like, where do I even start? And I always think the, the the key bits are starting to get a handle on where are you putting your money to work? Like, what, like people talk about jobs to be done. Like you have to give your money a job. Mm. And then if you give your money a job, then you're sort of parceling it Smart. out and different yeah. things. And you're not having to think about what is this money for. So I think the kind of the cognitive load around what should I be doing is enormous when it comes to money because we talk about that emotional yeah. thing. But if you effectively give each bit of your money as it comes into your account a job. So you say, okay, so this amount is for my bills. Yeah. This amount, and you can parcel it down as, you know, into little minute things. This amount is how much I have to spend on social stuff. Yeah. This is how much I'm going to put away into my pension or into savings. Once you start giving it jobs, that cognitive load disappears and the money is just funneled yeah. into what it should be doing and you don't have to think about it so much because the thing that we get told all the time is, oh God, I just don't want to think about yeah. it. I really don't want to have to think about it. And we're very lucky now with the technology that's available. So it used to be that you had to do it on a spreadsheet, which <laughs> even my friends who are accountants, like, you know, take them out of their day job and they're like, nope. <laughs> they tend to be terrible with their personal finances yeah. because they're like, I've been staring at a spreadsheet all day. The last thing yeah. I want to do is to create a spreadsheet. So budgeting is a horrible word. I think it strikes, I think it just makes everyone think, oh, I don't want to yeah. budget. That's like the fun police. <laughs> I don't want to. But now with the various apps and things that are available, it's much, much easier. So for people starting out, you... I would say you have sort of a choice of two routes. You either use one of the apps where they show you where each bit of your money is. So they'll show you what's in your current account. If you had a credit card, they'll show you the balance on that. If you have a pension, they'll show you it. So they're able to plug into all of your various different pots of money, whichever company or bank those pots of money are with, and they can show it all in one place. Yeah. And this is like magic and new. Um, and has only been available in the past sort of year. But you have apps like Yolt or Emma or Money Dashboard, and they'll combine. They'll do all of that work for you. So you just have to, like, plug in your various accounts, tell them, I'm with this bank and I've got this, and then they'll pull it all together and just show it to you on a screen. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that. Also, anyone that's feeling scared about the pots of money thing, there are so many people who are my age who don't have anything apart from their income that goes out on their rent. Just because I know when I first heard this, I hadn't put any money aside in savings. I, I've only just got um, a pension with a different company because I'm freelance. So all of this to me, I literally would have the money come into my account and it would go out and that was it. And there was never any anything in there. So so there's an interesting thing. So if you, if you start, and I think you have to be realistic about that, right? If you are, particularly if you, if you live in a major city, and you are in your first or second job, mm. the chances are you're going to be pretty much living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Right? That is just the reality. And you shouldn't feel bad yeah, yeah, yeah. about that. Right? You can look at what, what these um, apps are quite good at, though. So, and, and same with, say, if you use a Monzo or a Starling or one yeah. of these new banks where they track all of your spending. It's really good for you to start to get a handle on where is that totally. money going. And so... 
if you are the type of person that uses a card to pay for things rather mm. than cash, definitely get either one of these apps or one of these new banks where they are literally tracking every single transaction that you are doing and categorizing it for you so that you can see I spend X amount on subscriptions, whether it's Netflix, Spotify, whatever. I spend Y amount on going out. Yeah. And you can start to ask yourself, is that what I want? Yes. Again, it comes back to the mindfulness. Yes. Being able, be, being able to see it in a granular detail is the first step to being able to decide. It's, and so you're not putting any judgment against it. You're not saying, oh, I shouldn't mm. be spending that much. But you're looking at it objectively and saying, okay, do I really want to be spending that much on going out? Or do I want to be putting some of that into a savings pot? The the judgment and the mindfulness are two things that I think are really key because I think another thing that happens is we live in such a spendy era, like Instagram and social media and influencers, I hold my hand up, and people who are selling you things constantly, the tube, this advertisement galore. So it's really hard to be in a world where, one, you've got to have a new outfit every time you go out and new things on the one hand, and then you've got, as you say, every media outlet slamming millennials for spending money. And so I think we live in this tug of war where you're kind of like, but I'm supposed to be, how do I keep up with the Joneses or keep up with my friends or try this new restaurant? Because we are, the way that millennials experience everything is always through this like experience thing of like, I want to try that new restaurant or eat this new food or go to that new place. And so I think we can find a disjunct between that and being like, oh my God, but we're adults and we have to save. But as you say, it doesn't have to be you suddenly stopped doing all of those things. It's just like you didn't need the last Aperol spritz. Yeah. Because that's £15 in London. And if you're putting that away every week, you know, it will amount to something eventually. Yeah. And it's, um, so there's the sort, there's a, uh, for people who are wondering how much should I be putting into each kind of thing, right? There's a, People follow different things, but one of the easiest and the one that I follow is one that's called like the 50-30-20 rule, which is where, and and you have to, again, adjust this for your own situation because, again, if you're living in London, chances are your rent is going to be absolutely astronomical. So the 50% of your take-home pay, so whatever you get in your bank account from your salary or, or from your freelancing or whatever... 50% is supposed to go on your essentials. So what are your things for survival? So, you know, it's a roof over your head and it's food and it's transport to work and things like that. It's probably not Netflix. I know some people would disagree with me, but it's what are those essentials for living? Some people, that's going to be over 50% by the time Mm. they factor in their rent, right? And that's just the reality. So you just adjust the percentages to reflect your reality and you don't worry too much about it. Yeah. So 50% on essentials, and then 30% goes on the things that you want to do. So that would include like your Netflixes, that would include your going out, that would include non-essential clothes, you know, yeah. if you want, you know, if you're doing an ASOS spree or whatever, that's 30%. And then 20% goes into like for future you. So whether right. that's savings, pensions, investments. And the idea being that, so the way I do it is whatever money comes in at the beginning of the, whenever I get paid... I automatically parcel that out. So I have one current account that it all comes into as my primary account. That's the one that I pay my bills from. So 50% effectively stays in that account. And all of my direct debits and all of my essential stuff gets paid from that one. And then I have a separate Starling account for my 30% that I'm going to spend on, like my spends. That's what I need to do. Because then I can track it. And so it only... 
I only have that 30%. I can't yeah. spend more unless I mindfully take some money over. And also I'm keeping track of where that goes. Mm. And then I can decide, you know, keeping track of it means I can decide, do I want to spend that money on that extra cocktail or actually would I rather Wait. keep it back for yeah. something else? And then the crucial bit is, and people describe it as paying yourself first, that 20% that you want to set aside or whatever that percentage is that you can afford to set aside, you take it out at source. Right. So as soon as your paycheck comes in, that money gets pushed out in a standing order or direct debit into either your pension or your investments or your savings pot. So you don't even think about it. Yeah. I think it's that thing of if it's not there, because I think this is me and my government always talk about this. I'm ready to slam this now, but I'll be like, oh, I can't say because I'll always spend, I used to always <laughs> spend whatever came in. So I was like, well, I can't possibly save it. But if it's not there, whereas I've started putting away, I have to, some freelance have to put away 30% for tax, or whatever. So when I put that money away to be safe, I then will just, you just automatically spend whatever you've got. And we were trained to do it at uni, as I said, like I was able to live off tiny amounts. But I think it's that suddenly coming into an income and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm actually, like I've got a bit of, also, I won't even factor in my rent sometimes. I'm like, oh my God, I've got so much money in my account. And I think, oh shit, no, I don't, got to pay my rent. So I think it's just, it is that concept of, you will be able to adapt. It's just, it's just learning, it's managing, isn't it? I it guess. is, it really is. And it's, but if you do it, if you kind of do it at that source, if you do it at the point of, if you do it at the point that you get it and it's parceled out and off you go and then you've got your 30% or whatever your percentage yeah. is to spend, that suddenly has no guilt attached to it or any strings attached yeah. to it because you've already made that decision that that's okay. Yeah. You've already worked, you've already calculated for you that with everything else you need, oh, actually that's, that's guilt-free money and yeah. I can, I can actually enjoy it because that's the thing. There's, there's always... But you're talking about the tension um, between the conflict between wanting to spend and have things Mm. and do things and then the worry of, but hang on, can I actually afford it? By doing it this way, it takes a lot of that away because you've pre-decided what those amounts are. And then that is just your spending money and you figure it out. Yeah. Um, And by doing it that way, you also can slightly start to manage any bumps Mm. in the road because... Um, one of the other questions I get asked an awful lot from people as they're starting to move away from that paycheck to paycheck anxiety to having a bit more money and thinking, okay, what do I do with that surplus? Yeah. Should I be investing it? Should I be saving it? What should I do? And again, the, the, the rule for that is that you want to build up, say, three months worth of salary right. as your emergency fund. Right, on the assumption that if you were to lose your income, it may take you up to three months to be able to to get another job and to replace it. How long would you, because Emily said this as well, then she said she'd also have a pot with six months salary and everyone in the room just went, because ah! how, how long um, feasibly or usually would you say, or is there no real set amount of time, like how long should it take you to save three months salary? It's going to depend. It's going to entirely depend on how much surplus you have, right? If you are, if you've got a low income, it's going to take you a lot longer, and you shouldn't yeah. panic about this. You just want to be again trying to save it. It's just, it's just starting. Yeah, it's, and it sounds yeah. so so simple, but it's putting away, say, you know, starting to put away like twenty quid a month mm. to just get you started on it. Great, yeah, it's so because true. because it's that's better than nothing. Yeah, you know, it's really like the so many of us. Because we can't do the whole thing, yeah. don't start with the bit that will eventually get us there because it feels pointless. That's you know, putting exactly 20 quid a month yeah. feels like, oh, but I'm never going to have enough. But 
you will and you'll just, just just start putting it away. Yeah. Don't think about it. Just start putting it away. And then when you realize you can do a bit more, add that to it. Because I think what I would do initially when I first started to try savings is I'd try and take like 500 pounds straight away and be like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> that and then I'd end up moving it back because I couldn't save that much but I just wanted I was like well what's a good amount to have in a savings account I was like I want like a thousand pounds in this I'll put 500 pounds in now <laughs> and the next week I'd have to take out 250 and then there would be nothing in it was if I'd only put have a match in in the first place like 20 quid or whatever it was going to be even if you're doing that every week or whatever that would have been fine but it is that idea of like immediately you suddenly it's all or nothing yeah and there's some interesting apps I don't know if you've heard them that kind of do that whole rounding up thing so that you don't so that when you oh, spend right, money yeah. they'll round it up to say the nearest five pounds or nearest pound and you're just putting that money oh, away smart, gently. Yeah. so there's um and they use very clever AI and stuff to do that so there's one called Clio and there's one called Plum and I think one called Chip and they all kind of, they help you figure out how much can mm. I afford to put away in savings so you don't have to work it out for yourself. And some other people, for if they want to start investing, will use something like Moneybox, which again yeah. does the same thing where it just drip feeds little amounts into investments for you. And psychologically, the benefits of some of those is that you don't notice it. Yeah. You don't feel any loss. No. Because as humans, we're very primed to notice loss. And it kind of goes back to your grief point yeah. earlier. And it's... If we feel like we're putting something away that we no longer have access mm. to, that can feel that can create anxiety. Whereas totally. if you're just drip feeding, you don't actually notice it. When I, it's funny because I did clear and I really enjoyed it, but then I don't get paid regular amounts. It's yeah. never regular times, so I couldn't do it, and that made me feel quite stressed. And going back to the emotional point, last year Matt and I went on holiday to Greece, and on the flight home, and I cried, and I said, "I'm not doing this anymore. Can't do my job. I absolutely hate it." He was like, "Why do you hate it?" We're trying to figure out what it was, and it was that I hadn't been paid for four months because people hadn't been paying my invoices. Like when you're freelance, people are really bad. So I hadn't had, an, I'd luckily had enough money, but I was just getting to the point where I really was like struggling. And I got paid, and I was like, "Love my job," and it was it was amazing. All it was was financial stability. I don't think we give it enough credit sometimes it wreaks havoc it can cause so much stress and that's why like the idea of being in debt and you have to be so careful about taking out loans and yeah because it, it just it really does like that emotional thing I hadn't really thought about it but it's so true I'll realize that when I get a really good job in and I know I'm getting paid I feel really fine and I'm actually better with money whereas I get a bit scatty when I get worried that I might not get paid again because I'm like this might be my last paycheck yeah and it's and you are not alone. And again, this is a, a whole new generational thing that did not exist. You know, the previous generations had job for life. There was yeah. an expectation that they would do maybe one, two jobs in their career and that would be it. Yeah. So they had, and and, and also quite a steady career path. So yeah. you could see the person in front of you and roughly know what they had earned over the course of their career. So know what that path looked like for you. And we of all we're looking ahead going I don't know oh my god no idea so we've got you know we've got not just kind of freelance so I'm also freelance and it's taken me and I write about this quite a lot it I always say it takes you at least two years of freelancing to have any real sense of what your income is going to look yeah. like over time um I think the first couple of years you either scramble to take on any work that you can for fear of a drought. Yes. Um, and that is very panic-inducing. Or you don't have a sense of how frequently people are going to pay you. And mm. it's true, freelancers are paid appalling, like, so late. Yeah. The, I, I think, And I think it's really bad of big companies that 
we're often at the bottom of the pile yeah. and yet they know that we're individuals and they it's, know that we have to it, pay It's always rent. the big, whenever it's a new brand where I've struck up relationships with them, they're always amazing and they pay me really soon. Luckily, my management now actually will automatically pay me three days after a job completes if it's with, with them, right. even if they haven't been paid. But I've had it before. Honestly, it's one of the most stressful things. I've paid invoices for like, sent out this invoice months and they just don't care they won't answer the phone and these are huge multi-million pound companies that can't be asked to pay I know and I think this is again I think the the defining features of your generation are this you know the the student debt which feels like this weight that will never be lifted and makes you very nervous of taking out any debt products which actually could be helpful in some circumstances and this shift towards freelance, gig economy, or just generally a career where you might be doing lots of different things at different stages and therefore it feels harder to work out what each of those stages might look like and kind of plan far in the future. We've never had this before. Mm. Like um, I read something that said that this generation is closest to kind of a generation that went to war for the level of uncertainty around some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And, And yet... We massively underestimate the effect that that has on emotion, the effect it has, but crucially, as you, the effect that it has on choices. Mm. So people be holding back doing things or um, not committing to things or rashly committing to things because you, you don't know what you should be doing. There isn't a blueprint for no. you. And one of the things that we've been looking at with Lifeties is how do we help freelancers or those who have got hybrid, you know, hybrid jobs, you know, you've got Mm. a salary, but you might have a side hustle or people or people thinking about moving from salary to freelance or starting their own businesses, work out what that path looks Mm. like financially for them so that they feel they have some security as they go through. How do we show you how to even out your money over, you know, bumper months and then slightly leaner months and things like that? Because, yeah, we just haven't had this in the past. And I think it's that... um move away from again I think we do fundamentally are quite disenfranchised with some of the systems that are in place in companies so for instance I have a lot of guy friends who work in the city who are happy to get into work at 7am and not leave till 9pm I will never do that I don't care how much you'll pay me I'd rather work six different jobs and maybe be working those hours but we're doing it in Spain or like do you know doing things I really enjoy and I think that we've lost that sense of I just can't believe that companies will contract you nine till five and make you work those I find it really upsetting. I think a lot of people do. But then you're right, doing this like multi-hyphenate thing. And we all downplay it as well because all the jobs seem really fun. But I actually do have like six streams of income, if not more, at any one given time. Um, and it's so interesting, yeah, talking about that with people because it is it is just a whole new... It's not month to month anymore. I don't know when payday is. Someone will be like, let's go out on payday. I'm like, I don't know when that is. No yeah. idea. It completely changes. And and also it, it again, going back to, you know, we at Lifetize build everything around sort of life events. And interestingly, the two that we started with, buying a home and having children, are still very traditional, yeah. but still ones that have a huge emotional yes. pull because for a lot of people, that represents life stability. Totally. This is, this is what I want out of life. The interesting bit for us as we, we build more products is what does the new blueprint look like? What actually do people of your generation want out of life? Mm. And it is... It's different in many ways. It is, there's a lot more flexibility built in and that yeah. has obviously pros and cons attached to it. And how do we help people model what the new life with these different elements yeah. 
look like. And it's going to be fascinating for us. So the bits we're building at the moment is this overall life planner piece. So, you know, if you think about it at the moment, we've got these little snapshot things of, okay, I want to buy a home. And then maybe I want to have children. And we show you how to afford each of those things. Yeah, it's so cool. But the next bit is... I want you to tell me what are all of those elements of your life that ideally you would have, and I'll show you how to fit all of them together yeah. and afford them over time, right? Because that's the bit that people don't know. Yeah. Should, it, I want to help people answer the question, should I do this or should I do that? Yeah. You know, it's. Um, I'm giving a talk in September uh about um, those kind of sliding doors moments. Because mm. it is, it's life choices. And I want people to have as much information so that they they feel like they're making a choice, understanding what it means for them now mm. and in the future. And it is, it's, it's kind of like um, that, Black Mirror, uh, Netflix, Bandersnatch, but yes. obviously like much better and not, not, with, not, with, not with only terrible outcomes yeah. for people. But it is, it's about how can I show you you know, if, if you're thinking about, um, I'm doing a job I hate, I'm going to see if I can either switch career or go freelance or start my own business. Most people don't know what that looks like. No. You, you're having to guess at how to make that work financially. And that is huge. I mean, you know, it's yeah. hugely pressured. There's a, there's a, you feel like a ton of pressure on trying to work it all out for yeah. yourself. And I think that's mad. So I want to be able to show people how other people have done it. And I want to make it easy for people to kind of see what those calculations look like so that they can plot a path and feel like, I can do this. But it's it's so true. It's just the knowledge of understanding. I think it's even like when people first go to the gym, if you look around that gym, you'll think, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I remember feeling so scared. I'd go with seven girlfriends and make them watch me do one exercise and we'd be Googling it. And now I walk in, I know my way around the gym and it's habit and you just do it. And it's the same with anything. It's just that money, especially for women, I hate to gender it so much, but I really do think it is just we've been told and conditioned, it's not for you. Don't it's worry, you push a little head about it. And actually it's really empowering. I'm really excited. My girlfriends yesterday were absolutely getting so pissed off at me I was like guys we're gonna save us I actually feel really excited that I can have certainty about I might actually be able to put this money away it makes me want to cry because I do read those articles and I think well that's me I won't buy a house so then to think that just little things that I could do now will hopefully enable me to have more freedom is so empowering it's just about choice it's just and it's it's asking yourself what do I want and therefore what am I prepared to do now to get what I want? Yeah. It's and I and, and yeah. it's, so it is, it's it's and it's not a question of I think too often people try to do it based on willpower or something, you know, it's a little bit like trying to give up something, you know, just do you know, you're just doing it entirely based on willpower. Yeah. That doesn't work. No. Willpower alone, like they've proved it scientifically that humans we're not good with willpower. <laughs> we can't do it. We're not wired that way. We have to we have to be shown why, we have to be shown mm. how to do it, but we also need to be shown why. There has to be a... Motive. Yeah, and a real tangible incentive, and it's got to feel emotionally right for us, otherwise yeah. we're not going to do it. So, you know, there's there's so many, there's so much information out there, and there's so many practical things that people can do, but then you have to ask yourself, why aren't they doing it? Yeah. And it always comes down to fear. It yeah. always comes down to... I don't know how or I, I, I don't want to try or I'm because I'm not sure what the outcome is going to be and I when I talk to people I'm just like just do this one little yeah. bit 
What what is the first little bit that you could do today, for example? So could you have a look at your, could you either get one of these apps that shows you where your money is? Yeah. Okay, do that. That's step one. And it's it's so done. Do, this is why Live Tides is really cool. So Matt did this with me. He was like, imagine we'll put your salary in. And he was like, I don't have, I'll never have any money. I don't have like inheritance or money yeah. for a thing. He was like, imagine that you then save this much or I help you with the deposit or something. And it was just, it was just knowing where you stand, like what your money can buy. Because it doesn't really matter because we all catastrophize anyway. So I catastrophize everything. I'm like, I literally, nothing happened. When you know, it probably will actually be a bit better than you think it is, if you're like me. And you're like, oh, that's not that bad. So I've just got to do that. And so I think that you're creating a tool that is going to empower so many people just to even just check in on it and being like, oh, that's good. That's improved. Like I had a really bad credit rating. So when I went to Thailand when I was 18, someone was siphoning money off my card. They'd like copied my card and I didn't know. And I went to fly to Australia and my bank was like minus 800 pounds. And I rang my mom and she was so angry. I was like, it's not me. And they did like a whole forward investigation and they were, they just gave me the money back. They're like, someone had copied your card. But from that point, it still impacted my credit rating because my card had been overdrawn for so long. So I never wanted to look at my credit rating since then. It was awful. And I looked the other day and it's good. And I was like, oh, thank God. But I just wouldn't yeah. look. That was so stressful. That wasn't my fault. Uh, but also, <laughs> like I, I look at stuff. There's, I think, one of the um, price comparison sites at the moment has this big ad campaign around checking your credit score because of like fear, you know, don't be don't be so afraid, you know, you're gonna have loads of anxiety if you don't do it. And I really, I don't like fear-based no. marketing around money because people are desperately anxious about yeah. it, right? People, most people feel some level of unease yeah. and anxiety around it. And I just think, don't, don't make people feel worse about mm. the things that they're not doing already out of fear. Mm. <laughs> but um, credit score is an interesting one because it's such a dark arts thing. Like oh nobody knows how it works because it's oh, made okay. up. Um, <laughs> no, it is. It's just made up by these companies. And uh, so there's different companies that do it, um, like Experian yeah. and Equifax and stuff. And they all have different scores. So they use different numbers. Oh, um, and basically, the, the basic gist is it's supposed to be a reflection of your credit wor- worthiness, right? How, if a, if a bank was to lend you some money, how likely is it that you're going to pay it back? Um, but it's this weird catch-22 situation where you only get a credit score if you've ever taken out debt. Yeah. Some sort of debt product. And that could include, um, say, if you have a mobile phone on contract and things like that. So, a lot of people now, because of mobile phones, do have a credit score. But if you're the sort of person who doesn't like credit cards or won't take out a loan, yeah. then you could be in a situation where your credit score is really low, not because you're a credit risk and you're not worth yeah. taking the oh, risk, I see. but simply because you have never taken out any debt. Yeah. Well, I don't want a credit card. I know I should get one because for the credit score thing and like, but that's never been something. I'm not ready for that. <laughs> I just don't so why myself. not? So what's the so you, you feel that you might just spend, spend, spend because uh, you've got this free money? Like, maybe, the... but I also think for me it's the uncertainty of like if I said oh, I'm going to spend this much on a month and then I did that thing where I don't get paid and then yes. obviously I have to have the same. So I think I'd have to have all my other finances perfectly in check, really well balanced and like have all my savings because it is like I had a job that was meant to be paying for certain things and that will just fall through. Yeah. So then I'm, if I think behind. I've had the added pressure of I'm in arrears for my credit card, and that's unexpected. And I haven't yet got that 30% of my salary saved. For me, it would just be too... I'm very scared of the idea of getting into debt and it's spiralling. I've got a really big fear of that. So I don't want any 
at all. Yeah, it's really, really common uh, amongst your generation. It's really interesting. So I'm I'm just on the edge of like um, Generation X, and we were just brought up with like credit cards, go for it. <laughs> no, we were. We were absolutely, like, you know, from uni onwards, just like pushed on us. Yeah. So I have several, um, but the but what I hear from from everybody is exactly the same. Too scared too scared, worrying that it will mm. spiral. And because of interest rates on credit cards being so high, it is something that I recommend people don't take out unless they feel comfortable. The one thing I would say is if people need to build up a credit score, then that 30% of our 50, 30, yeah. 20, say your spends, what you could do is get a 0% credit card yeah. because then you're not paying any interest on it. And then you could use that to pay for your spend stuff. So you always know that it's never going to be more than you can pay yeah. off every month. You set up your direct debit from your primary account for that 30%. You spend that 30% on your credit card and then pay it off automatically each month. And that will really boost your yeah. credit score. But only if you can get a 0% credit card and just do it during that 0% period. But that can sometimes give you like two years of paying no interest. And that can be quite helpful. The other thing for people, if you are too scared of getting a credit card, but you do want to start building up a credit score, there's these new systems where paying your rent can count. Mm. Because that's the biggest thing for yeah, most people. Totally. And it should count, you know, yeah. theoretically it should count. But in, in the past, it has never counted. But there are a couple of companies, I think the one in the UK is called Credit Ladder. I think your landlord has to agree with it. Right. But if it's something, you know, if you look at your credit score and you see that it's low, and you want to build up, then that would probably be an alternative that you could do. Oh, and then, and then so you don't good. have to take on any debt. I think I think what I'm getting out of this, or I think what the take-home that I find really important is, I think it's what I went said kind of at the beginning, but in your 20s, you're going to have such a big scope of things. I've got some friends who are amazing with their American Express gold card, and they're constantly getting, like, points. And then I've got other friends like me who are like, I don't really get how credit card works, or I've only just started. And the point is, saving isn't only accessible to your friends with the American Express gold card it's for all of you whether or not you're earning 16k or whatever it's just scaling it to you I think we all think we've got to reach a certain pressure point yeah. and once you get to that like once I'm earning 50k yeah okay then I'll then put I'll do it. money aside but that's not that doesn't have to be that way the best thing is just to start just start no one's judging you on no, no one actually gets to look and see how much you're putting. Yeah. No one, yeah. no one gets exactly. To, no one gets to tell you if you're doing it right or not. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's just for you. Yeah, and so there is an element. I think it's really important that people do talk with their peers about money and ask questions. Um, particularly if you're feeling less confident and you see somebody who's very good at it, ask them questions. Yeah, but then apply it to your own situation. I think there's a lot of pressure around comparison. Yeah. And I think you have to you have to just try not to compare yourself. Totally. And it's very hard. It's very easy to say that and hard to do. But it's your situation is your situation. There are only certain levers that you can pull in terms of getting a higher salary or, you know, spending less. And I think we have to be very kind to ourselves about what's realistic. Yeah. And not add that judgment on top of things because yeah. it's that judgment that stops us taking action. Well, that's exactly, I guess, Lifetime's point is just to give you a realistic understanding of where you're at and what your ability is. And it's just it's just giving you a little tool to be like, okay, I can take charge of this rather than feeling like it's a big, yeah, scary thing. Yeah, horrible, overwhelming terror. Um, so, oh, I've literally loved this conversation. Was there anything else specific you needed to add or say? 
No, I think that's it. I think, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of articles and stuff on yes. our site if people want that's to people ask. want to learn about, you know, some of these topics. You know, we have things around how to pay off debt. You know, there are a couple of specific ways around paying debt that have been proven to work really well for people. So if that's a, an issue for people, um, they can look at that. And um, we're always happy to kind of take questions for people on, on their specific circumstances. We have like an agony aunt column where people can write in about mm. specific issues that they're facing and we try and give them some some advice on that. Amazing. And then if people want to find you or can they come along to talks that you're doing, or is there anything you want to plug that you've got coming up? Yeah, so basically lifeties.com is where you'll find all of our tools. They're completely free to use. Um, you don't even need to create an account. If you do create an account, it allows us to send you more good stuff. Um, and um, lifeties.com forward slash events is where you'll find all of our upcoming mm. events. Amazing. Thank you so much, Caroline. And thank you guys for listening. Thanks for having me. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>